You're listening to the audio sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. For almost 130 years, FBCMF has served Marble Falls and the greater Highland Lakes area faithfully through children's programs, youth activities, and adult discipleship. We invite you to join us each and every Sunday morning at 9 and 10.30 a.m. for deep fellowship, rich worship, and a spirit-filled message. For those who find themselves unable to attend on a Sunday morning, we stream those services. Simply visit fbcmf.live during either of our service times to view it. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org. We're talking this morning about the rise and fall of King David. And you know his uh, early childhood and leading up to this moment where Nathan comes to him. He was the youngest son of a man named Jesse. And his country, Israel, was always at war with a group of people called the Philistines. And King Saul was on the throne as David was growing up. As David grew up, he had a moment where he was the hero, where the Philistines' champion, a man named Goliath, had been threatening all of Israel, and nobody was going to fight against him, but a a young man named David said that he would. David came out, and he killed Goliath with one stone. The whole community, the whole nation, just, it it, it was, uh, David was the national hero of the day. Everybody was excited about him. Um, David began to grow up, and he became a great military leader, but he was also a poet. He was also a musician and played the harp. Uh, David had all kinds of great skills. He was charismatic. People loved him. And uh, the prophet Samuel told him that he was going to be the next king. And sure enough, when Samuel, I mean, when King Saul was killed in battle against the Philistines, David rose to be the king. When he was the king, everything was going very, very well. He was almost undefeated in battles. He led extremely well. He was a good military kind of genius. But the thing that King David loved the most was God. He followed Yahweh wholeheartedly. There was nothing else that mattered to him as much as God. In fact, throughout the entire, his whole life, the most excited that we see David is when he was able to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He was so excited about that because David was passionate about God, loved him very, very much. And so David's life was going well. One day, all of uh, his soldiers were out fighting, and David probably should have been out with the rest of the soldiers fighting, but he wasn't. He was at home. And when he was at home, he was up on the roof of his house, and uh, and he's just walking around. I don't know what he was doing, and I, I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know that he was praying, though. When you're praying, when you're close to God, you... It can prevent you from making the certain falls that David had at this moment. And so he's walking and he sees on another rooftop, probably a very short distance away, there was a woman and she was bathing out there um, and she was drop dead gorgeous. That's what David thought. And, uh, and David looked at her and, and the moment happened when his glance turned into a glare All kinds of things that are tempting will pass our eyes, don't they? All kinds of things that we shouldn't just 
stay with and, and hold on to. All kinds of things will pass our eyes. But the difference in sin is when something crosses and you bounce your eyes away from that thing and you bounce it to something else. Because you know that if I fixate on that, if, if, I, don't, if I don't look away, then, then something is going to happen inside of me that's not good, it's not pure, it's not healthy, and it's not right. And so things cross our eyes but we bounce our eyes away from that thing and we bounce our heart and our mind away from it as well. David had the moment where he didn't bounce. Instead of just glancing and looking away, his glance became a glare. And when his glance became a glare and he sat there and continued to watch this woman, something happened inside of his heart where he began to lust and he began to want her so much so that, that he was willing to do anything. And, and he had the power to do it, and he was the king. And so he sends a guy over, and he says, I want you to find out who that woman is. And the guy knows. He said, well, that's, that's Bathsheba, and she is married, David. She's married. You don't do anything else, David. This should be the end of the discussion. And David said, no, no, I want you to go get her for me. He comes up. She comes up to his room, and they, they sleep together. They shouldn't have done it. And... Um, uh, and so she goes back home, and she gets word to King David that I'm expecting a child. David panics, and David concocts a plan in order to cover it all up. And so he tells his great general Joab that I want you to get her husband, who is also in the military, and I want you to put him way out on the front lines of everything. And right in the heat of the battle, right when we need to fight the hardest, I want you to pull everybody back so that he dies in battle. And so David is going to murder, murder the woman's husband. Uriah was his name. And so he does and then he's dead, and she has her very short moment of mourning over her husband, and David very quickly arranges a marriage, and he gets married. It was the greatest scandal in the entire Old Testament. This is scandalous. It's huge. And so now you're all caught up with the story, and we find King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and about nine months have gone by. From the moment that he had the affair and then the murder and the marriage, about nine months have happened. And you can guess, nine months, guess what's about to come? The baby. The baby's coming. And frankly, uh, you, you can skip pretty quick from chapter 11 when it talks about the scandal into chapter 12. And you don't realize that about nine months have gone by and really nothing bad yet has happened to David. Things are really going fairly well. And I wonder if David starts to think, hey, I think I got away with it. I think that I've about made it. The baby is coming. Everything's going pretty well. Nobody's talking about Uriah right now. If anybody does think that any funny business went on, they ain't talking about it publicly. The Jerusalem Inquirer is not putting it on the front page. Nobody really knows about it. And if they do, they're keeping it exceedingly secret. King David's like, you know what? I, I think that it all worked out. And then the day that the baby is going to be born, he is there waiting for the announcement. Maybe, what do you think it is like? I, I picture David there with all of his friends, and they're all happy, and they're all smiling, joking. 
They're patting their buddy David on the back, saying, good job, David, another baby being born into your family. And they are just about to light up the celebration cigars. And in walks the prophet, barging into the party. The prophet Nathan comes in. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I need to talk to the new proud father alone, if you don't mind. And they all leave, and they're patting David on the shoulder, and there is Nathan, and, and King David probably thinks, here's my old friend Nathan. Come to wish me good job. Come to, come to give me good tidings, Nathan. No, not, not exactly. Have any of you, though, ever celebrated something on the outside, but inside you're really tore up about something and it prevents you from being able to celebrate? You ever been in a situation where you should have been happy, but, but your smile is very much skin deep? I, I want to offer an observation that I've made over the years in regard to King David's life during this nine-month period of time, what I think that he may have been going through and what I think that I can prove, actually, that he was going through. I've come to the conclusion that the, the thought and the feeling that I have got away with something is not as good of a thought or feeling as you might think. Sin, sin has a way of, of gnawing, gnawing at our soul. And it doesn't matter what good times we're involved in because you truly can't sincerely and holistically enjoy anything because there's something that's preventing you from enjoying it. There's something that's stripping away your ability to be happy about a marriage or about a baby being born or no matter what David was going through. I mean, I, I don't think for a moment that David's life during this nine-month period of time was enjoyable at all. It's not as if he is enjoying, you know, long, delightful nights with his new bride, Instead, he's laying there in his bed and he's tossing and turning and every time he looks up at the ceiling, he sees the word sin written across it as he chews his pillow to bits and tossing and turning. He wakes up and he walks through his castle and he sees the word sin written on all the walls and every time he tries to look somewhere else, he sees it there and he sees it there. Sin, sin, sin. And he looks down to eat his food and he eats it and there staring at him in his plate, the word sin as he tries to choke back his food because he's living, he's living a lie. And there are so many illustrations in our life that teach us this kind of idea that when you're living a lie, it really screws you up inside. It's very hard to, to, to live normally and to live healthy when you have this kind of thing happening to you and, and, it, and it, it kills you inside. So many illustrations, but maybe the best illustration is King David's own words about that nine-month period of time. In 2 Samuel, it just skips over and it doesn't talk about it. But y'all know later in life, David writes all of these psalms. And he writes them later on, often as a reflection on what he was dealing with during the time. It's kind of like a journal of his life. And he's saying, this was bad. And, and so in Psalm 32, 
Uh, David reflects on these nine months in between the affair with Bathsheba and the moment that Nathan came and said, dude, you have messed up in between that time. David talks about it in Psalm 32. This is what he says. Here it is on the screen for you. Psalm 32 it is entitled the Psalm of David, a miskel, and a miskel means an instruction, an important instruction, and y'all, it's good instruction for us to listen to this, because if we listen to these instructions, we will be very, very wise to take heed of it. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so David is dealing with this issue where his spirit is, has been deceitful. And he is comparing and contrasting that a man who does not live in deceit, that man is blessed. The word blessed is like the Greek word makurios. It means happy. That when you do not live a life of deceit, you're happy. It's a blessed life. And he says that person is, is blessed. But he says, now me, let's compare and contrast it. He says, but when I kept silent, my bones they wasted away through my groaning all day long. That sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? He got away with it. Man, you're, you're free, aren't you, David? Nobody found out. You're free, man. No, no, my bones were wasting away. It was miserable. I was utterly miserable. I got away with it. But, but, but I'm dying. It's killing me inside. And he continues, and he says this, day and night, God, it feels like your hand is heavy upon me. My strength is sapped as if I'm having heat exhaustion in the heat of summer. He's having, he feels like it all the time, heat exhaustion and this disconnect between him and God. And, and, and Lord, your hand, rather than your love and your face looking at me, it's like your hand is against me. I feel it all the time. Here's how the Message Bible writes it. Um, Eugene Peterson, the translator of the Message Bible, translates Psalm 32 like this. David said, count yourself lucky if God holds nothing against you and if you're holding nothing back from God. If you've confessed and you and God are good, count yourself lucky. Because for me, while I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder and my words became like day-long groans. The pressure on me, the pressure never let up day and night. It was always with me and all the juices of my life were dried up. Oh, but he's, he's free. He made it, right? He got away with it. Well, there he is. He's reflecting on his life. The most powerful man, the most powerful in the entire known world at that time. And he's scared to death. And he is depressed and he is living a lie. This story suggests that, that getting away with something is really more devastating than people think it is. You just thought you got away with it, but it's, it's, it's killing you inside. What, what all happens to people when, they're, when they have secret sin in their life? What, what, what do y'all think happens to them inside? Well, let me give you just a few. 
I can tell you this, that when a sin, and I've learned, I've learned all of these, y'all. I, I've learned every single one of these from two things, ob- observing and talking with others, and, and y'all experiencing this my own self. I, I've experienced all of these things, and here's a big one. When you're living in a secret kind of sin, a secret situation, and, and, and before you come clean to God, the, here's something that happens. You're paranoid. You're paranoid. You, you think, oh my goodness, somebody is going to find out. And eventually, when they find out, everything is going to fall apart. I, I, and, and you're scared all the time. Here's another big one. When a sin is secret... It affects your ability to have healthy relationships with anybody because you're not healthy on the inside. And, and so it's hard to connect with people around you Be, because of it. Here is a big one. When a sin is secret, you don't ever feel like worshiping God, really. You come into church, and instead of being able to sing praises or listen to a sermon, you just kind of feel like sinking into your seat, and you wish, oh God, I wish I wasn't here at all. Hurry up, Ross, finish. We want the invitation. How can I get out of the, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's just so uncomfortable to be in the presence of God, to be in the presence of other Christians. And so we avoid it. A lot of times people stop coming to worship, not because they're too busy, but because they, they just don't want to be in the presence of God. And they certainly don't want to be in the presence of other Christians either. And secret sin does this to people. And it becomes very hard. It's like you build a wall between you and between God. And, and, and you may be singing the songs kind of or kind of listening, but you're really not connecting with God at all. Here is one. When, when a sin is secret, the horrible thing that, that, that you did or the sin that, that happened, it continues to replay over and over and over in your mind as well. And you can't get away from it. When a sin is secret... You live in fear that, that at some point the shoe is going to fall and that God, God's going to allow something really bad to happen to me. Y'all, that's no way to live. When you put all of it together, no relationships, disconnect from God, unhealthy in yourself, all of it. But you got away with it, right? Man, I, I did it. Is getting away with it, I ask you, is getting away with it worth it? All of that? some kinds of guilt, some kinds of guilt are not healthy guilt. And what we're talking about here with King David is healthy. To be able to feel that is healthy, but not everything, not every kind of guilt that you feel is, is healthy and good. And I'm not talking about that. There are some kinds of fake unhealthy guilt, and it's brought on not because God wants your heart to get right with him or to convict you. Some of it is because of the judgment of other people or the suggestions of other people. I, I, I was in a church, and, um, and I had this really unhealthy moment of guilt because there was a certain couple, and apparently they had had a really tight and close-knit relationship with a pastor. And I don't know if it was a pastor before me or some other pastor way a long time ago, but this is what they said. They said, Ross, um, we, with the pastor before uh, that we had had, we played 42 almost every night of the week with the pastor. And, and we're just hoping to have that kind of close relationship with you too. 42, for those of you who don't know, 42, the domino game, 
you know, and, and you go, and uh, it, it's fun, and, and, and I love playing 42, but here's the thing. I can't play 42 every night of the week. I don't want to play 42 every night of the week. You can play, you know, Scrabble, too, or something <laughs> every night. But, but they're saying, man, we had this kind of thing with the pastor, and we're just hoping. So here's what they were saying that we expect you, we expect you and your wife to come and, 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 and to be that kind of, to spend all that time. And, and sometimes we would go and I, I just, you know, I couldn't. There was no way. And they would remind me of it. Hey, when are you going to come over? When are you going to come over? I couldn't make it over. And they made me feel guilty about it. I began to feel like I was a bad pastor because I wasn't playing 42, I'm the guy who's messed up, I began to feel like. And why have I let them down? And man, God, I, I just can't do the, all of this. And finally, God said, Ross, I haven't called you to play 42 all the time. You're fine. He said, now there are a lot of things you should feel guilty about. That's not one of them, buddy. You got to let that kind of thing go, man. And so I did, and I, 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 I thought, ah. Oh, so I don't have to do that, and I let it go. That, that, that's an unhealthy guilt, and you've got to let go of stuff like that. But there is another kind of guilt, and this kind of guilt is initiated in your heart because we have knowingly disobeyed God, and we are just carrying along, carrying along as if everything is okay and just continuing on. And here's what that kind of guilt is like. It's like you're in a car, and, and, and in your dashboard, there are all of these warning signs that blink and blink and blink. Pretend like there's a warning sign in your life, and it blinks when something inside is about to go wrong. When, when your car is about to, to overheat, or your car is about to blow an engine, and you cannot keep going, the warning light, that's what healthy guilt is. It's the warning light that goes on in the car. I had a, a horrible, Megan reminded me of this. I drove a horrible car in college. And um, if any of you ever drove a clunker, uh, I, I, would, I would love to put my clunker in competition with your clunker. And, and to see, uh, the, my, our, that light came on all the time, all the time. In my, in my car, every time I'd hit a bump, the trunk would fly open. I'd say, like, pull over, put it back. The, the, the seat belt never, ever worked. I, cl I click it in, and, and, and it pops out, pops out. I had to tie it in a knot and everything. And you could see the, you could see the pavement through the floorboard. You're driving, and you see the road going, geez, 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 right, right beneath you. If you drop something, man, it's gone. It is a horrible car. You could start it with a screwdriver. And, and guys in the dorm would mess with me, and they'd, you know, steal it and drive it and put it in other parts of the campus and take it when they wanted to. I'd come out, where's my car? Ah, oh, I saw it over, you know, you know, seven blocks away. Ah, you know, you start it with a screwdriver and anybody could have taken it, you know. Um, it, it was horrible. The light all the time. But here's what I knew, that of all the things that were wrong with it, a clunker that runs is better than no car at all. And uh, so when that light came on, man, I'm like, golly, of all the things, I better get the engine. If it's transmission, if it's engine stuff, pull it in and get the thing fixed. And if the light comes on in your car, there's only two ways to make the light go off. You either take it to the mechanic and the mechanic fixes it and turns the light off. Best solution. You also, when the light comes on, 
you could keep a hammer in your glove compartment. And, and when it comes on, take the hammer out, and you could beat the dashboard and beat it out until, ah, I got rid of that light. Now everything's fine. And I got rid of it. King David, for nine months, beat the light out with a hammer. Ignoring, ignoring the guilt that's in him. And, and I, I dare say that some of you carry around an imaginary hammer all the time to beat back the guilt of something that you have done wrong. And you beat it out of your mind in all kinds of ways. And you tell yourself, beating it out, saying, you know what? Everybody does this. Everybody does it. Go away, Guilt. You think, oh, I'll I'll address it later. I'll I'll take care of it some other time. And you beat it back with that as well. Or you beat it back by saying, you know what? In the whole scheme of things, what I've dealt with is really not all that bad. It's not that horrible. Only I know about it. I don't think it's affected a lot of people. And you beat it back to beat back the guilt with a hammer. And we need to learn this from the story that God, God may not settle his accounts today or tomorrow or next week or at the end of a year, but God always settles his accounts. In Galatians 6, it says, God can't be mocked. A man or a woman reaps what he sows and what they sow. And y'all, we learn this lesson in history. We learn it in our families We learn it from every walk of life, and it doesn't matter who you are. There have been presidents involved in immoral, sketchy, sometimes illegal activity. Senators and congressmen, preachers, CEOs, plumbers, school teachers, high school students, fast food employees. It doesn't matter when you're living a sin in secret, it messes you up. It hurts you, and it, and it destroys every part of your life. And so, enter Nathan on the scene. Scholars believe that the parable that Nathan tells right here belongs to a certain genre of parables called a self-condemnation parable, where you tell the parable in a way that the other person recognizes and sees themselves in the parable, and then they find out or they discover their own sinfulness. A self-condemnation parable is what this is called, and you've Find examples of it, like in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is an example of this kind of genre of parables. But it's never fun to be the subject of a self-condemnation parable. Somebody starts telling a story and you think, dang, this is a good story. Oh, shoot, I'm in the middle of this story. (laughs) Yeah, never fun. The images, the images that the parable gives are undeniable and how they compare to David's situation. He starts talking about shepherds, and David thinks, I like this story. I'm a shepherd. And then he goes into the issue of how much the poor man loved his one lamb. And the imagery is, is undisputable in how it talks about Bathsheba right here, that the one poor shepherd brings the sheep into his bedroom, and, and he holds that sheep. The sheep's like a family member in, in that regard. You see, it's, it's Uriah holding his wife, his wife, Bathsheba. That's the poor man. Oh, David doesn't get it yet, not yet. He becomes so mad at the rich shepherd 
that, that is the ruling judge. He, he rules all of Israel. He, he has the privilege of giving the penalty, of giving the sentence. And so the king says, I'm so mad about this. Uh, the, the rich shepherd deserves death. And he has to pay back four times everything to th- that he took from the poor shepherd. Pay it back four times. Now, if you fast forward into all the consequences... It's amazing how prophetic Nathan's prophecy was because David loses four children. It's almost like David's prescription for punishment became his punishment. I mean, not even realizing it, David pronounced judgment on himself. It's as if David sticks his head through his own noose. All the way in, it's around his neck, and all, all Nathan has to do is just give the noose a little bit of tug. Um, and Nathan does. There's David's head, and he sticks it in the noose all by himself, and Nathan tugs by saying, you like that story? You are that man, pal. David knows I'm caught. I'm caught in the middle of all the lies. I'm caught in all of it. But then, hold the phone. Amazingly, David doesn't panic. David doesn't fall to pieces. I expected him to. I expect David to lose it completely and start screaming at the top of his lungs. I expect him to to maybe try to kill Nathan too. I expect David just to to weep uncontrollably. That's what all I expected from this moment, to, to really panic. And David doesn't. He doesn't panic at all. And it made me wonder, I wonder if the reason that he doesn't is because there was a moment of relief. The secret The secret sin was killing him, killing him. And as embarrassing and terrifying as the facts were, and as embarrassing as getting caught is, maybe getting caught, as hard as it is, is better than living the lie. Do you suppose that that getting caught is actually better? David seems to, to think so. Maybe... When you get caught, finally the healing can begin. Healing. And, and that, that God sent somebody very special to talk to him about all of it. In Proverbs 27, 6, it says, Faithful are the words of a trusted friend. Literally, the verse means, or reads, Trustworthy are the bruises that are caused by the wounding of somebody who loves you a lot. It's the kind of confrontation that's very, very healthy for a Christian to have. It's the best thing in the world for a Christian who is hiding a sin when a friend who loves him very much can come. When it's a friend who truly loves you can speak into your life, it's our friends who have the keys to our prison cell. Our prison cell. And I want you all to know this. Husbands and wives, your closest friends should be one another. It should be true in word. It should be true in deed. Your closest friend and confidant should be each other. You should be able to be safe and to trust each other. And you should have friends who should be able to do all of those things for you as well. Now, David, David's certainly not happy about the consequences. The consequences are awful. It was a horrible thing that happened to his kingdom. But 
That's a different sermon. Despite the coming retribution, I think that David was happier in being caught and in confessing his sin than he was for the nine months when nobody knew about it and he was hiding it and not wanting any, keeping it all inside because as he kept it all inside, it's destroying him from the inside. And so the text says this, that, that when Nathan said, you are that man, David said in a moment of confession, I am, I have sinned. I wonder what it was like. There is his friend Nathan and he tells him and I picture maybe David, the king, falling to his knees, and he looks up into the eyes of his good friend, and he says, I've done it. I've sinned against the Lord. I've done that. Now, why is it that I think at that moment that there was a change in David that was better than what he had been experiencing before? In Psalm 32 we read that a moment ago where David talks about his bones being crushed and how horrible it was, but, but we stop short of this moment because what David does in that psalm is he talks about the confession, and he talks about what happened in his life when he confessed at that moment, and this is what the rest of it says. If we were to continue on and see it, let's back up. We'll read the whole thing. So blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and whose spirit there's no deceit, not deceiving God. He's doing well. And he says, but me, here's my situation. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer as if I'm having a heat stroke. And then it is. And then Nathan came into my life. And I acknowledged my sin to you. No more cover-up. I didn't try to cover up my iniquity. No more lies. Here is who I am, opening himself up to all of it. I didn't cover it up, and so I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And when he did, you forgave me. The guilt of my sin, the thing, it goes away. No more. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you, Lord, while you still may be found. Stopping the charade is healing. Stopping the lies are healing to us. David's day ended up being a perfect day because for the first time in months and months, he was free, wasn't he? He was free. The consequences were still there, make no mistake, but he was free. It leads me to say this, and, and I've talked to my girls about this before, and I really believe it's true. Never, ever let the fear of the consequences keep you away from the freedom of confession. Never. Rusty Freeman and I were talking about this this past week, and he gave me the best quote in the world for it. Rusty said this, the consequences, acknowledging, dealing with the consequences, the consequences are always better than the cover-up. Gosh, I agree. It's always better. Freedom is always better. Nathan responded immediately to David, your sins have been taken away. 
That's what he said. In 1 John 1, 7, it says that if we will confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you don't have a friend like Nathan, then this morning, let Jesus Christ be your friend. Let him speak to you. Let the Lord, in this moment of invitation, let the Lord speak to your heart and let him play the role of Nathan in your life. Let the Lord speak to you. And what will make this day perfect for you is if you will listen to Christ the same way that David listened to Nathan. And Jesus will say this, I saved you because you are that man. And I already know about it. You're caught. You're caught. And you know what? Being caught is a greater blessing than you ever thought that it would be. Getting caught is better than the cover-up. And so, the Lord says, we are those people. And so, now, we can be free. You've been listening to the audio sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org.